Hi there, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. Given our current context, what does it mean to live well in this moment? And how can we make changes that will shape the world we will live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? We do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of and typically living in places that are not front of mind in discussions about disruption. But we think these people are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. We want us all to get as much as possible out of these stories, to feel encouraged, connected, and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. In all forms of our society, in everything we do every day, if we're not part of the solution when it comes to climate, we're part of the problem. It's just, it's that bifurcated. And yet, I can't hold myself up and say I'm perfect. Uh, none of us can, so it's fascinating. I think the future is bleak and outrageously exciting all at once. Hey, it's Adam Murray here, and welcome to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. In this episode, we have quite the broad-ranging conversation. We talk about the value that's been unlocked through tech startups over the past 20 years, through entrepreneurial thinking, and how this doesn't necessarily translate to corporates, but the, the value that can be unlocked there through a tailored approach to innovation. We look at both the micro and macro ways we can approach the complex and ambiguous and uncertain and paradoxical and even tribal times that we find ourselves in today. And we think about growing as people from feedback to reflection and action. And while it was a broad range of conversation, through it all there was this theme of inclusivity and being open to reality and creating positive change through reflective action. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with John Chambers on the subtle disruption of the macro and the micro. John, JC, what's, uh, what do I... Oh, mate, either way. Either way. It depends if we're being formal or not. So in this setting, I think JC's the go. JC, all right. Great to be chatting with you. I was just saying, we've had so many attempts to sit down together, so it's good to be finally doing it. I always ask first up, like, where are we chatting and why have you chosen this place for our conversation? So we're sitting in a slightly refurbished textile mill here in Richmond, in East Richmond, which is the offices of IE, the company... I now am one of the lucky managing partners of. Uh, the reason we're here, I, I thought of a lot of places that maybe we could do this. First, it was kind of NAB Labs. No, not NAB Labs, NAB Village, because when I left Telstra a few, two and a half years ago, I spent my first six months hustling as a consultant, doing other things, and NAB Village became a little home because it was this free co-working space that I was like, you know, because I was part of the bank, and it was really cool, and you'd see all these other hustlers around there. So that kind of felt really interesting to me for a while, but I think now that I've settled in this small, medium business environment, working in a, an amazing digital company. This feels more like home and me, and, yeah, it's a, that's why we're at IE. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great area around Richmond here. Like, there's so much happening in yeah. this area around that technical area as well, isn't it? It's oh, like a... absolutely. We, we actually run a regular event called Silicon Block, which is based on this concept that we're on, you know, the Silicon Valley of, of at least of Melbourne, the Silicon Block, but with, which is the Cremorne, you know, the Church which Treats, One Street area. And, uh, yeah, it is. It's, I've, having come from working in the city to here has been quite amazing. You, know, you just walk up and down REA and car sales and everyone's around. And I knew it was that, but it's very different living here and working here and, feeling that vibe of just digital and, and new stuff everywhere. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm. So one thing you said about working in that village that I wasn't aware of, did, you worked as a solo consultant, did you? Or so, what sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I left Telstra, I did um, a few things. I did some work um, working with some of the big consulting firms just, you know, um, on, on some of the things I've got some experience in, telco and innovation and whatnot, just more 
point jobs. I started my own consulting firm called Fresh Ventures, which which is how I ended up at IE. So I spent a year consulting to some large corporates on innovation and strategic innovation. And uh, I bought that consultancy. So that's why I ended up here. And that, I did a lot of that work out of, out of the village. So rather than, you know, get a, my own office, I figured was, was, I was pretty much with clients 80% of the time. So when I wasn't, if I was taking meetings or doing other things, I'd just work out of the village. I think it's one of the you know, the banks are having some ch challenges, but one of the, the, the best value adds I've ever had from, from a bank was the ability to work free in a great co-working space with free Wi-Fi and work around other entrepreneurs. So it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So you've got quite a diverse experience then, right? You've got like the biggest of corporates in Australia, really. Yeah. And then your own startup consulting business as well. Now maybe somewhere a little bit in between here yeah. at IE. Yeah. What do you love about all those different things? Like, what has each one of them brought to where you are right now? It was, I love it all, like seriously. And I love actually being in the intersection of small and big. Like I think that's where heaps of value is going to be created, right? Or is being created and it's going to be created. It's just, it's just a complex space. I'll talk more about that in a second. But the reason I did these things, I had another startup as well called Tapple, which, you know, hasn't gone as well. I've got another little startup in, in handsets called Murup, which is a Wurundjeri word around recycling handsets. So I've tried a number of things. And the reason for that is when I left Telstra, I was utterly convinced, having spent two years running and trying to spin up big, large, new businesses and innovative businesses and using the, all of these new tools and mindsets to get the company oriented towards that, I was convinced of one thing, which was entrepreneurship is where value is created. In the current world, and I believe in the next 20 years, when you look at the intersection of digital and entrepreneurship, whether it's startups or wherever it is, that's where value, that's where economic value, human value is being created. So I knew I just wanted to work in that space. At Telstra, running the new businesses area and the incubator, so I had this amazing opportunity over a couple of years to take hundreds of ideas from around the place, validate them, test them, put them into small tests and experiments, incubate them, put them into market, do what you dream to do as an innovator, right? And in doing that, I became, I got obsessed. This was the way, entrepreneurship was the way. But I also would challenge anyone who wanted to come and work in my team with a question, which was, it seemed like an exciting place to work, right, when you're in a, in a place like Telstra. And I would say, how do you feel about halving your salary? But if you nail it, if you nail this project I give you and we create value from it in six months, I'll give you 10 times your bonus. So you'll wake out like a bandit, but you're going to put some risk on the line. And I got about two in 10 people. Two in 10 people went, heck yeah. And then eight in 10 went, oh. And that was how I weeded it out. But then at the end of, nearing the end of the journey, I went, would I stand up to that challenge? Would I have the courage to put my neck on the line? And I looked around my peers and said, would, do I think they would? And I realised I probably wasn't, really living up to the standard I'd set. So that was why I went, I've got to go, I've got to go live it. I've got to put my neck on the line. I've got to take some risks. I've got to see if I can create value. That was why the startups, that was why my own thing and ultimately why I'm here is to try and keep doing that and help other people do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. I mean, what did you learn about yourself in doing that, making that move? You have to be realistic as well. So I, that, the reason I did the consulting was while I was working on the startups, I knew I had to have a bit of cash coming in or else if you completely choke the cash flow when, in, when you build a certain kind of life and you have a family, it doesn't work for everybody. So I had to be realistic and keep things alive. You know, there's some dark nights. When you're hustling your own little one-man, two-man, three-person business and I remember waking up in... My first year of consulting, I had a great year. I had some big gigs with NAB and Center Group and RACV. Like, you know, I was like, this, this stuff's easy, I'm killing it. But then I remember waking up 
one morning in November and go, and I, I had three or four deals that I was trying to close and I went, they're not going to close. And if they don't close now, I won't close them until February 1. That's three months, maybe four months of nothing. I'm stuffed. Like it was, that's real, right? You don't have that realisation in Telstra. <laughs> so I had to go and hustle. I like had to hit the streets, work hard, create some new short, sharp business offers that I could get some short consulting work done and I got through. But it was like that moment of just going, it's just me. I've got to go and create this. I've got to do this. No one's going to do it for me. Even as an executive, even as a CEO running a large corporate, ultimately you've got a whole bunch of resources at disposal and you've still got a board to report to. Yeah, it's really interesting when it's just you and you've got a family and all that other stuff. So that was one of the amazing learnings. And, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't trade that stuff for the world because it's completely reframed how I think about doing business and how I spend money in any project in any way. The, the leanness that I approach it now is quite different. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a lot about value creation there and what you see happening over the next 20 years. Yeah. What can be enabled in that way through big corporates? Like is there is there big barriers there to that being actualised and it's like only through like smaller consultancies or smaller one-person shows or startups, or can that actually happen in big corporates as well? I absolutely believe it can and will. Actually, that's when you unpack IE's mission and vision, it's pretty simple, which is, and which is why my consultancy and IE came together. We believe, Reese, the founder, and I, when we came together, we both believe the same thing, which is the last 10, 20 years has been a great season for startups, unicorns, value creation in, in, a, in a sort of a digital startup space. It's been amazing. Some of it's been real, some of it hasn't. Some of it's, you know falsely generated by the, the VC machine and how they pump value and, you know, at the end of it, how much genuine profit and outcome will be delivered is unclear from you know, even someone like an Uber, right? Like, I think Uber's done an amazing job of creating a whole new framework that people interact with services and they've done an amazing job of, if you want to call it disruption, of changing how things are viewed. Will they ultimately be a super profitable company in five to ten years? I mean, Remains, still remains to be seen. Like there's, they don't have a massive moat in their driving business. They've got incredible technology that they're, that they're fighting hard with the rest of the world on. So is that value creation? I, th- I think it is, but it's not necessarily the value creation that a corporate would value because when corporates think about how do we do the next startup, they think about how quickly can I get to net profit? How quickly can I get to positive cash being thrown off this thing to support my crumbling core business, right? So very different mindset to a VC that goes, how much can I pump this valve to get my exit and, and get my liquidity event? They're, they're different forms of value creation. So can corporates learn from startups? Absolutely. Is it the same thing? Absolutely not. I get really frustrated with consultancies and books and things saying, innovate like a startup. Completely not the right answer, in my view, for what corporate should be doing. But what I fundamentally believe is if the last 20 years have been the era of the startup and the tech startup and the unicorn, the next 10 have to be the era of the corporate working it out, leveraging their balance sheet, leveraging their amazing distribution, starting to get the right skills and capabilities in-house from the board to the basement. Like there's some really interesting pockets of I was having this, this chat with someone on text last night about entrepreneurship. People call themselves entrepreneurs. Little pockets of people who are you know, innovative, excited, really want to change the world, but they're sitting in a pocket, a pocket of brilliance that usually just gets crushed and squashed out. The corporate, the whole corporate needs to understand how this stuff works, how to create value, how to grow. Corporates like Amazon just embody what it is, right? And it's, it's a bit pat to use them as an example, but when you look at the machine of innovation they've built, it's just phenomenal. They didn't start as an innovation machine, they started as a digital shop who went, okay, we've nailed one thing. How do we take our core assets of 
customer obsession and, and, and understanding digital experiences and just grow that into other things. Then they learned how to create ideas, validate ideas, scale ideas, do the, chuck out the bad ones, keep moving and do that at scale. They learn to be an innovator. I think any corporate can, but it actually requires top-down support. It requires a board, the board who know how to steer and govern and ask the right questions about growth and innovation compared to how they're working their core business. It requires executives with skills and experience. It requires capability throughout the organisation. Those things don't just happen. They're part of a strategy. And that's why I'm stuff innovating like a startup that or running an accelerator, all that kind of stuff. Those are small tools within an overall toolkit. You have to go after this strategically as a company. I call it being ambidextrous. I've, you know, a term I've stolen from a couple of researchers called Tushman and O'Reilly, but be completely ambidextrous as a company that thinks in one moment we're utterly focused on driving value from our core and doing great things for our customers. In the same moment, with a different set of muscles, we're absolutely focused on exploring, searching, finding new value, testing, validating new value, scaling new value. That's what you've got to be. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> those people then that are those entrepreneurs in those little pockets who might be listening to this right yeah, now, yeah, like yeah. What, what can you say to them about being inside that? Is it time to get out or, you know, can they do stuff in there? Wow, man, it's, I'm a really mean person on this one because I've seen if you base it on my empirical research of dozens of organizations so far I'd say if you are passionate about being involved in scaled innovation find a company that's passionate about being doing scaled innovation taking things and making them big if you're in a company where you feel like you and a hand a band of you know brothers and sisters are fighting the good fight down in a in some little corner and you're hoping one day you're going to nail it and the guys up top and the girls up top are going to notice and help blow it up and make it big. I just haven't seen it happen a lot. It doesn't. Generally, if that's what's happening, the folks at the boardroom table, the folks at the executive table have a lot of priorities. Generally, it's quarterly profit results. It's, you know, how are we going to get the cost out? How are we going to execute on the strategy that's on the table? They're not looking for new things to do. They're having enough trouble getting the company to execute with focus what's on the table. So they're not looking for you. They're just going, they're actually, they'll get frustrated by you because they'll be going, I need to get you back aligned to what we're trying to do. I don't want you doing what you want to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's why it's really hard. So if I was brutal and based on empirical evidence, I'd say if that's what you want to do, go find a company that wants, wants you to do that. But I don't want to discourage people from believing, right? And it's not impossible and it's not, it's not that it's never happened that innovation has come grassroots. It's just not, it's not your high percentage bet. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is my hope and this is what we're doing here at IE. We want to work with companies to help boardroom to the basement work out how to do this so that we can find those little pockets of brilliance and turn them into muscles, turn them into capabilities, turn them into engines of growth that will create the future of the company. But that's why we like to work with, with executives on identifying that, seeing that and working out how to scale that. Yeah. And as you're working with them, is it about... Like, is it about implementing big frameworks or is it about kind of small, small cultural changes that kind of then permeate? Or how do, you, yeah, how do you plant that seed? Absolutely. Both is the answer. Ultimately, my experience has been without a framework that the company can see what you're doing through. So we have a quite a detailed, rich framework for what we call corporate innovation of how you govern it and steer it at the executive level and set your strategy, how you build the system from idea through to scale, and then also how you, using the right, but we call it innovation thesis, but this idea that 
if you're going to focus at, on innovation at scale, you've got to have a, a set of parameters into which you're going to do that, right? So if you're a venture capitalist and you're going to go and spend $100 million or a billion dollars of people's money, you shouldn't or wouldn't do that without a pretty clear thesis about where value is going to be created. You know, if you're Andreessen Horowitz, you might have a fund around AI and you'd have some deep beliefs around what to- where AI is going to be in 10 years, where it's going to create value in, in the world and monetary value, and then what kind of startups you're looking for to go and test that thesis and, and expand that. And you, that thesis will get deeper and deeper as you start to scan thousands of companies and choose only a handful, right? Corporate should have that same level of thought. They should be thinking, if we're going to innovate, we're going to create new value, new growth engines, where would we have the right to do that? Based on our brand, our capabilities, our people, our strategy, and the problems that are out there, where would we most likely be able to do that? And they should set that up. And then you can set your people forth to go and innovate into those spaces. So you don't get that disappointing thing where people go and do something amazing down here, turn up to the board after six months of effort and the board go, huh, not what I had in mind, you know. I don't, don't think we can talk to our shareholders about that kind of business and everyone's like, huh. Whereas just a bit of work up front on setting the thesis can alleviate so much pain and get a lot more focus and a lot better outcomes. So that's why we have these frameworks that help companies think about it end to end. You don't have to implement it all at once. It's not a, it's not a strategy plan on the page kind of thing. It's just I want to innovate at scale over the long term. We see these muscles, these capabilities that you need to build up and then within that, we tend to find lighthouse projects. We tend to find, okay, well, you've, got, you've already got something over here, so why don't we now leverage this framework and start to really explode what's happening over in the CX team or explode what's happening over in this little project over here that's been set up to go and find some growth and create these lighthouses where the leadership can go, here's the framework, here's where we're headed, and here's an example of what good looks like. And everyone goes, ah, oh, I get it, and everyone can start to galvanise around that. So it's kind of both. Yeah. Yeah. You're asking me all my favourite questions here, man, so the, question, the answers are getting a bit long. No, they're all plants, yeah. <laughs> There's two areas I want to explore with yeah. the time that we've got left. One's kind of right down at an individual level yeah. and around like personal growth and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that kind of thing. And the other one is around, more around kind of tackling like the super complex, ambiguous, uncertain problems that we're facing as a society today. And you talked about value creation mm. and how... All of that mix, like the startups, the corporates, the solos, everyone. How, what are we actually doing to, to tackle those? How do we tackle things that are so hard to even articulate clearly? So I want to explore both those things just to, but, you know, maybe we start with the macro yeah, first yeah. and then go down to the micro. Okay. But, yeah, so does that, that question make sense about yeah. that? Yeah. How do we create value in society? In society, yeah, given like... I guess the desire for concrete and for simple and for elegant yeah. when it's messy, when there's so many different tribes, when the problems are systemic and multifaceted and hard to even really touch. They're very nebulous. Yeah. What are we doing? How do we do wow. this? Wow, man, this is a whole... Maybe we could do it like in six months. We can revisit. And do yeah. I'd love to do a whole one on this. Yeah. I'll come there from a couple of angles. One, I think we're really struggling to have a great conversation in society right now about, this might sound weird, but about, about values, about belief, about purpose. I think we've, we're getting dumbed down. I think technology has doing us a disservice. I'm not the only one obviously thinks this, that we're, you know, this, these social tools are making us become more homogenous in how we think in these tribes that we form into, but almost the tools are so explosive, it makes it impossible to have a dialogue. If I think about one of my favourite 
reflections on this, um, I'll go back to an, an ancient book, an ancient script, but if you go back to the Bible and you think about one of the apostles in the Bible, Paul, there's a place called Mars Hill where he goes, where he's talking about his belief, his belief system, and he goes to this place, and this place was a place of philosophers, and, and these existed all over the world in that age, 2,000 years ago, and for hundreds of years after that, where people would just come to, it would be a marketplace of ideas. People have formed ideas that they hold, you know, softly and they would come and share their ideas with other people and they would bounce and they'd say, tell me more about your ideas. Rather than turning up with these hard-edged ideas that have been formed in the crucible of social media to defend, they'd say, tell me about your ideas. And in this marketplace of ideas, people would share and, and people would come with something that was radically different to you and you'd could go and not feel it, or you go, that's really interesting. Let's come back together and talk more and bounce off each other. I love that idea. Like that, yeah. that for me, I could do that all day, but I, I don't find those spaces very much. I seek them and they're amazing people and there are moments like this, but I don't find those spaces. And what I find is that what seems to be the majority of the dialogue and conversation is not that. It's got a position and I'm going to defend it. And we're all guilty of it, right? But that's, that worries me because I don't think while we're, proceeding at pace with technology in such incredible rapidity. Here's a great example. You know Blinkist? There's this new thing called Blinkist, new app that basically does all the coolest books in the world and breaks them down to yeah, a 12-minute yeah, read. Yeah, yeah. So me, right? Because I'm freaking fast. I want to get the information. I don't want to have those long reads. So I'm completely guilty of this consumer behaviour, but I do it. There's a book on there, I think it's called The Big Nine, explain the future of AI and how the, the big forces, the Googles, the Apples and government, Chinese and American government, are ultimately right in the middle now of creating the future of the world because once AI becomes genuinely autonomous and intelligence becomes self-directed, it's what's been fed into that that will, that will basically drive the world. And that is being created right now by nine large organisations around the world. And the bulk of that is driven by profit. So if you're in the corporate part of that, not the government part, you build things that people will fund and you will exit and make money on. So profit is driving the mind that's being built into the AI that's going to govern the world in the next 20 or 30 years for our kids. That's bloody scary. And that's, I can't, I can't even touch that. That's so far away from me, but that's what's coming. So if you think about this lack of the ability to have a marketplace of ideas, the lack of ability to have a dialogue and really grow as a society and the fact that our current mindset is what's being embedded into the AI that's going to drive the world at a pace that we cannot keep up with or control, pretty interesting time <laughs> we're living in. Yeah. But amongst that, how good is life, you know? I wake up every day with beautiful kids who are doing interesting things with, with a wonderful wife, working with amazing people, getting to do amazing things with amazing companies. I'm utterly happy and content in a bizarre way while the world often looks like it's crumbling around me. So I don't know how to quite explain that. But the other angle I'd come at that question from is really about, well, then how do we create value in that? And in a world where we know the planet's almost gone, right? There's a really interesting documentary called The Three Industrial, The Third Industrial Revolution. There's this IoT thing of the third industrial, which is Jeffrey Rifkin, Jeremy Rifkin, a professor dude who advises like Angela Merkel and China, long-term thinker. And he's convinced that basically the planet's dead by 2070. Nothing we're doing today can intervene. It's, it's gone. It's just the, the trends are broadly too big. But it would take radical intervention. He's got some ideas on what those interventions might be. But ultimately, the really clear message is if every single thing we're doing isn't pointing towards that, we haven't got a hope. And yet, how slow are we to turn? Like, how slow are we to turn? How slow are our energy companies or our government 
able to support our energy companies to go, even though we've got to drive a profit for our shareholders, somehow we just have to stop coal-fired and move to sustainable uh, energy creation tomorrow. We just have to work out the cost and make that happen. In all forms of our society, in everything we do every day, if we're not part of the solution when it comes to climate, we're part of the problem. It's just, it's that bifurcated. And yet, I can't hold myself up and say I'm perfect. Uh, None of us can. So it's fascinating. I think the future is bleak and outrageously exciting all at once. And that's why living in the moment kind of is our best plan because it's, if you think too much about it, you might get, you might, uh, anyway, explode. (laughs) Did that answer any of your questions? Yeah, it did. Yeah, I want to, let's touch on living in the moment in a sec. But when you were talking about that marketplace of ideas and going back to the time of Paul. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but you know Birarang Ma yeah. in Melbourne here. Yeah. There's this little pocket. It's sort of in between. If you're walking, say, from the east into the city, yeah. you know, that it goes up to those cafes and bars on the left there. And you've got the Melbourne Park, the tennis centre on the right. Yeah. It's this little bit of grass. And if you've ever seen it, there's like these little knolls there that are they're circles and they're like surrounded in rocks. Have you seen this no. before? There's about... Maybe there's a dozen of them yeah. there and there's little plaques on some of them. If you read them, they say this used to be the place where people would come and they'd stand on these and they'd talk, like what you're saying. They'd come up with their ideas and people would gather around and the good people they'd kind of listen with and engage with. And this was a place in Melbourne where used, people used to come and do this, yeah, like yeah. what you were talking That's about. So like, cool. Wow, imagine kind of – imagine that could be reinvented as yeah. this place where – it could be a place of having that really open dialogue without wanting to convince someone or having an outcome that we expected, but just being open to where an idea might go and connecting and engaging. Yeah. That's so cool. And that's actually a really good point. We should acknowledge that wisdom that's been in Virang Mar and throughout Melbourne and Nam for 60,000 years. So exciting to be doing this podcast on Wurundjeri land and with that that incredible wisdom that we're only just beginning to learn from. What a great example, a marketplace of ideas. I wonder how we might learn more from yeah. how, how the ancestors of this land operated and, and I just want to pay my respects to them as, we, as we're talking and sitting on their land today as well. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I know this is something that in terms of tapping into Indigenous wisdom and Indigenous culture as well is something that is important to you. Yeah. yeah I wanted to just touch on that a little bit and how people yeah. can start in their day-to-day life start to tap into that wisdom themselves as well and doing it in an appropriate and really sensitive way yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. It's something I have been trying to do for maybe six or seven years now very actively and I stuff up all the time. Like I'm so hopeless that because of this energy, I was talking about you know, fast pace. I love fast pace. I go thin. I do as many things as I can at once, which is the opposite of my Aboriginal friends who are tend to be much more patient, much more focused, have a much bigger, longer perspective on life. When you've got a 60,000 years perspective rather than a quarterly profit report, you have a very different perspective on what's important. But it's something I've, it's been probably my greatest learning journey. One of my greatest learning journeys is life is just to engage and listen and hear from amazing um, Indigenous people around Australia. The question of how to engage, I think there's, there's heaps of ways. For me, the framework that's always helped me was one that we created. So at Telstra, I had the joy of being very involved with our Reconciliation Action Plan, sponsoring a lot of initiatives and trying to work out how to do some meaningful things there. What I learned there was this three-step process that I always kept in mind, which was awareness, connection and action. And 
for me, the goal is always building across all of those things in how I engage and how I learn because if I try to go straight to action when I don't have awareness and I don't have connection, I always stuff up because it's what I want to do. It's what I think is needed. So I always try to make sure I, I move in that path. How do I build more awareness? How do I read the books? For me, breakthrough moment, I've had some you know, very deep immersive moments where I've learned a lot about how who I am and how I work in relationship to our Indigenous people. But going to the Gama Festival a number of times has been one of those. Uh, doing the Wukalina walk down in Tasmania, beautiful new four-day work, walk with young emerging elders on country down in the Bay of Fires area, um, Mount Wukalina, and oh, it's just stunning. But learning on country from them, their history, their past, the pain, the joy, the beauty, amazing immersion that, that made me much more humble and sort of able to engage, I guess. And, yeah, I think so finding those experiences where you're, Connecting and learning and building awareness are fundamental. The other one is the First Australians TV series that Rachel Perkins, I think with some help from Marsha Lankin, put together five or six episodes, one for each state, tells the whole story of the state. Heartbreaking. You watch the, the Victorian one and I defy you not to just bawl with the pain and of the story of, you know, Corin Dirk and everything that goes on there. But all that awareness building is so fundamental because from there you understand the story that you're trying to interact with. Then connection... In reality, it's actually can be quite hard. Most I remember at Telstra when we were working on reconciliation work, most Telstra people would say, I, I don't have an Aboriginal friend and, in fact, I haven't met one or really talked to one for maybe ever or, or for years. And it's not through my... That's not my desire. I just don't have that exposure. And that lack of connection makes it hard, right, to engage. And we all want to be authentic. If we're going to take a step towards something, we want to do it in a way that's authentic. We never want to do something fake or be perceived. So... Connection's really important to be authentic, but you have to be preactive and find, well, how do I find that? How do I find these connections? And there's heaps of ways, but they're not necessarily logical. But you've got to be a bit hungry for it, I think, and go, if you engage with the Wurundjeri Land Council and maybe their Facebook page, you'll see that there are open events all the time. There are St Kilda festivals. There's all these places where you can go and engage and just reach out and start to meet and hang out with and learn from Aboriginal people. Smith Street um, Dreaming is a, you know, an annual festival as part of the big music festival up in Collingwood. Just a day, go and hang out. You'll meet 10 Aboriginal people, you'll chat, you'll yarn, you'll sit around the fire, you'll watch some bands. Those little steps just start to make a difference. The other one is if in business, maybe work out what you bring and where you might like to work with and learn from Aboriginal people in business. And if you're in digital, go and find some... There's a, you know, I work with a group called Indigitech who are helping to try and bring and raise up the tech jobs ecosystem for Aboriginal people. We get to engage and help and I can add some of my skills into that mix. So find that place where you can authentically connect and then start to do that. And then through that, actions will emerge. There's no lack of action that you can take to learn and no lack of action you can take to support and be an ally. But if you do it in that way, you'll do it well and you'll do it authentically and you'll do it respectfully as opposed to, I'm going to solve a problem. Yeah. We like doing that. We love solving problems. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's good. Let's switch now back to the micro, as I was talking about earlier. And you've touched on your own, a couple of things, like your own startup in Tapper, which I know is kind of about yeah. feedback and growth yeah, for yeah, individuals. Yeah. That first 360 that you had as a, yeah. a leader, I think we are talking before we started recording as yeah. well. But then also, you know, being in the moment and those moments of self-discovery that you've had. I mean, all of that learning and, and as a manager of people now, like what, what are your reflections now on people's own personal growth and how to best enable that? I think 
there's so much in that, right? For me, the journey has been one of being humbled by life, I guess, and then always being willing to learn from life. So my 20s weren't powerhouse time for me. Like I was working what life was. I was working at what I wanted to do. I didn't really have a career of any sort till my late 20s when I sort of started to get into IT and the corporate world. Before that, I was in hospitality and other things. And I found it really hard. I, I wasn't sure. I remember coming home most days in my 20s well, many days quite depressed and fearful and uncertain of if I was capable of doing what was in front of me. And it was really hard. That Life really humbled me in my 20s. And from there, I, I did a lot of counselling with my wife as well. And I continue to be really actively use help whenever I feel like I need it. Like it's one of my biggest hacks is just get help. Like if you're up against anything, whether it's in your relationship, in your personal life, and you don't seem to be cracking it, Get help. It kind of sounds obvious, but we just naturally always try to solve everything ourselves. So did all that. And then I guess as I started to move into corporate, what I found was I was actually torn for a long time because I moved, moved out of ultimate the health profession and drug and alcohol counselling into corporate. And I felt quite torn for my first 10 years, like I'd sold out. I was a helper and now I'm just a, you know, an IT money guy or something. But it was when I got into leadership that I've refound purpose. I went, well, if I get to turn up every day and give people some inspiration, give people some purpose for what, how they're spending 40 hours a week and help them grow, that's pretty noble. That's something I can feel good about every day. So it really re-energised my, my path. But then, and this is where why Tapple became very important to me, I thought I was an awesome leader. I'm like, I'm so good at this, I'm so friendly, da 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 And probably two years into leading a team of maybe seven, I got my first full 360 where everybody gave me feedback and I got hammered. You know, JC doesn't communicate well, he doesn't pass on information, he, we're unclear where he's, what the direction is or what the vision is and all these things that I'm like, I just realised I just didn't naturally do. I thought it was all about, you know, having a beer and being friends and all that kind of stuff. So that was really hard. I think I got out of bed a couple of weeks later and got back on the, on the horse, <laughs> but it was, it was tough. Yeah. But it also set me... A passion I learned from other leaders who'd been through that same journey of going, well, I've, at least I've got data, at least I've got feedback. Now I can set a path to improving. I can hold myself accountable to changing certain aspects. I can do things that aren't my natural way of being, but they're the right way for this circumstance. And so I became passionate about this idea of developing myself and developing people, uh, understanding where we want to get to. And that can be framed in many ways. Generally, I try to frame for myself and others about purpose. Think about five years, think about 10 years. Think about the, the things you've overcome in life, the things that you're most passionate about you want to share with others, the things where you feel you create the greatest impact and start to map out this destination of impact that you want to create. And then when you've got that, and that doesn't usually just pop, but once you start to get some a shape of that, you can start to say, well, where am I? What are my strengths and what are my weaknesses and what do I need to build in terms of experiences, capabilities and skills, relationships and networks? What are the things I need to build to move from where I am to the greatest impact? And then you've got a plan. Then you've got something you can actually start to action. Then you know what kind of mentors you need, not just a random mentor who seems impressive, but someone who's going to help you fill those gaps, build those networks and experiences, mm, yeah. that kind of thing. You can really start to move forward. And then what I found is no matter what job I'm in, I start to get motivated. I start to feel as if I'm in a job that's helping me close those gaps and move towards an outcome, I love it. I'm enjoying it every day. If my goal in life is to get a promotion, then life can get very frustrating because all I'm doing every day is going, how do I get a promotion? How do I get a promotion? I've got to show off. I've got to look good in every moment. I've got to be impressive. I've got to be all these things. 
that just creates stress and anxiety. But when I'm growth path towards impact, life's good. Yeah. So that's been my journey. That's why TAPL was so important. Is it? It's one thing to have the path, but if you don't know where you are and you don't know where your strengths and weaknesses are today, you actually got a big gap in your vision. So we, we didn't see anyone solving that problem really well. So we really went hard at it. We're probably at the point where we've realised it's a really hard problem to solve, but gosh, it was a good journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we're almost out of time. I'd yeah. love to delve into some of that stuff more with you at some point if yeah. we can. But let's wrap up with one question and it's just around, I guess, coming back to and thinking about yourself and thinking about subtle changes, yeah. subtle disruptions. And what's a, a subtle thing that you've done in your own life that's had a, an important or sustaining or disproportionately large impact? That's a great question. I think it's probably when I've been at my best and at my fastest growing, it's usually been in community, small community. So I have at the moment I have and at times in my life I've had generally a bloke or a couple of blokes that I meet with regularly at the moment it's probably every fortnight to basically have this kind of conversation where we share what's going on what we're trying to do where we're stuffing up and where we need to be a bit honest about some stuff that we might be going on in our lives and we talk pretty openly and then we sort of hold each other accountable to change and I've found that when I have that relationship or that community going on, I actually am more thoughtful and I know I'm going to come back and talk to this guy or these fellas in a couple of weeks about how I'm doing. It actually gets me to focus more, shift more, be more accountable to who I want to be. And it's probably, I'd probably say it's the greatest hack. There's a few hacks I've tried, but that's one that's been the most effective. Does that make sense? It does, mm. yeah. JC, so good to chat. I learn a lot every time <laughs> I, I hear you talk, so I appreciate you taking the time. Mate. Thanks, Adam. It was good, man. Good. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, so much more I'd love to talk about, but yeah, really good chat. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening. We are looking to spread these stories of subtle disruption in organic ways so that more people like you can be encouraged by them. One way you can help is through sharing this episode with a colleague or friend, someone who you think could get something good out of this conversation. If you want to get in touch with suggestions for guests or anything else, you can reach us through adam at subtledisruptors.com. I'm Adam Murray, and one day I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.